Well, hey friends, it's Anne Eileen Thompson. Welcome back to the Faith Driven Leader Podcast. You know, here on FDL, we want to equip and embolden one another towards deep, deep trust in our good Father God when it comes to our lives and our careers. We love to share stories from amazing faith-driven leaders. Our guest today is Dr. Kevin Brown. Dr. Brown is the president of Asbury University. Some of you might recall that back in February of 23, uh, there was a significant outpouring of the Holy Spirit that broke out on the campus of Asbury University, which is a school of about 1,100 students in the tiny little town of Wilmore, Kentucky. And what happened was for more than two straight weeks with no stop, students and visitors worshiped and prayed and encountered the Lord in some pretty incredible ways. It's estimated that over 50,000 people took part in person in the revival, and there were literally millions of social media interactions from around the globe during that time. It was a really amazing move of God that touched so many lives. My husband and I, we actually went down to Asbury and visited during the outpouring. And let me just say, we felt such a supernatural peace. And we had a truly authentic experience with the Lord while on the campus, even amidst throngs of hungry young people and even some other old people like us as well. Now, Dr. Brown's leadership might really surprise you. You know, at a time when the population on campus exploded 50x, his meekness, his trust in the Holy Spirit really struck me as one of the purest and most inspirational examples of leadership that I've ever experienced. Not because it was bold and in your face, not because it was disciplined and controlled, but really because it was born out of true, deep trust in the Lord and submission to His will and to His voice. I was so honored to have this conversation with Dr. Brown. I think you're going to be challenged and inspired as a leader. I think you're going to be energized and hopeful about the next generation of leaders. And I think you're going to be equipped and emboldened to trust the Lord even more by listening in on our conversation. Dr. Kevin Brown, I am just so honored to be able to chat with you today. And we're going to talk a bit about the outpouring, but really I'm so interested to learn from you and have our listeners learn from you about what you're seeing in this generation of young leaders mm-hmm. and things like that. So thank you for joining us on the Faith Driven Leader Podcast. Thank you for the opportunity. These are things I love. I love to talk about. I love to talk about students. So thanks again for the opportunity. Awesome. Awesome. Well, let's dive in. I, you know, a lot of people, most of our listeners probably know about the outpouring that happened kind of late winter, early spring of 23 at Asbury. And I had the opportunity to visit during the outpouring. And then again, and I had the opportunity to hear you and talk to some of the other folks on your leadership about, on your leadership team about how you guys led through that outpouring. And I thought it was such a beautiful lesson in leadership. Mm. And I'd love you to tell us, tell us the story. How did you decide? How did you hear from the Lord? How did you know what you and the other leadership team's role needed to be during this outpouring? Yeah. And this may not even be that articulate because I'm still thinking through some of those things myself. So February 8th, Asbury has a regularly scheduled chapel. Students stay, a handful of students stay. 
that grows throughout the afternoon, that gains additional attention. More and more students come. Students come from other schools. People come from other counties and states and countries. And so over a 16-day period, we've estimated 50,000 or so people came to our two-stoplight town. That very first day, well, let me, let me say this. There's been a lot of discussion about what causes something like that to happen. And I think that's an interesting question, but I don't know how fruitful it is to spend a lot of time on the causal factors. I am interested in what sustains something like that. And I think part of it is a significant part is sustained by the the people within the community who they have a high spiritual temperature, but they have this kind of holy imagination, this, this collective imagination for what's happening and what could happen. And so right away on February 8th, especially in the afternoon, our community the, the men and women who work here, there was just this sense of like, okay, this is unusual. Something's happening, but we think we know what this might be happening. We, we think students are having a significant spiritual encounter. They're displaying forms of spiritual hunger and this kind of appetite for godly things. And so let's step back. And there was just this collective response of to give that space and let what unfolds unfold. And that wasn't led in in a traditional sense of like a leader saying, hey, everyone, do the following, so much as it emerged and various leaders throughout campus, including myself, sought to just foster what, what was happening. So there was orderliness, but there wasn't orchestration, if that makes sense. We were trying not to yeah. put our thumbprint on it. And I remember that evening of the 8th, Students are worshiping, things are going strong. And I I guess I was the unimaginative one. I always just thought the next hour, this will probably end. Okay, but the next hour, <laughs> that's when everyone will go home. And someone approached me and said, I really think you should consider keeping the chapel open all night. And so a group of us met. I mean, if like we were in the basement, our VP of student development, her daughter was on her hip, you know, and she's... and. <laughs> There was just this enthusiasm to say yes, yeah. like, yeah, let's keep this open and I'll take this shift and you take that shift and we can do these things. And so I would say from a leadership standpoint, a lot of, I think two things happened. One, a lot of people just kind of dissolved. In other words, there's some role on campus or someone from off campus came to help. And all of those identities just dissolved into this one coherent unit that had one aim in mind, and that is to faithfully and responsibly bring a degree of orderliness so that we can see what might unfold from this. So there, there was kind of this symmetry, if you will, across different positions where we didn't have these hierarchies, uh, where someone would say, I'm a vice president of this, and I want you to do that. It, it was really people just locked arms trying to, again, accommodate what was happening However, having said that, as things moved on, I felt like I had a responsibility to bring some institutional considerations to what was happening. The outpouring, as we have described it, is very much a fruit of our mission, but it's really not our direct mission. And when I've said this, what I mean by that is like the board of trustees doesn't say, Kevin, are you having revival-like events at Asbury? Or <laughs> our accrediting body doesn't say, have you checked the box of 
uh, a revival type event. And so rather we, we are in the business of formative student education. And so we have 1100 or so students living on our campus. And so our first, our first priority is to them and to their experience and to their education, their spiritual maturation, uh, their social edification. And so as things progressed, that consideration became more significant to me and to mm-hmm. others on our campus that what is the horizon of this? Having said that, I wouldn't characterize that as, hey, this is becoming unsustainable for our students. And so how do we just end this? Rather, I think from the beginning, there was a sense that as this grew, there was a trajectory for it and the trajectory is out. Yeah. And in other words, we're, we're not trying to, we don't own this. We're not trying to we're not perpetually. Trying to hoard it. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. yeah. We're not trying to localize what's happening. Rather, if if we view this as the opportunity to participate in something, then yeah, how do we steward that well, but foster its trajectory out? And so this worked out really well because amazingly, miraculously, you might say, we had pre-scheduled the Collegiate Day of Prayer to take place on our campus. And this, this was a consideration all the way back in 2021 to come to Asbury University for a Collegiate Day of Prayer, which is this nationally live-streamed worship event that accommodates to Gen Z and college students. And that was on February 23rd. And so that was kind of our, our landing where we were going to bring to a close the public services at Asbury University while recognizing we're not closing anything that the Lord might be doing. We're not closing hearts being stirred. We're not closing, we're not ending uh, how the Spirit might respond to hearts being stirred. And so I think that was kind of the the leadership roller coaster. (laughs) This is really good. It will outlive us. People will talk about it in the future and we want to foster it, but we have a responsibility to our students and the trajectory of this is out. So I've shared this before, but it's worth saying here in our group discussions, the metaphor of a fire emerged and that Mm -hmm. a fire is brightest when it's tallest. So in that sense, we we had this multi-week, massive spiritual bonfire. Yeah. But a fire is hottest when it's actually smoldering, smoldering embers. And so I liked that metaphor because it suggests, could it be that even though this looks like it's, you know, air quotes, dying down, actually something else is happening that's much yeah. bigger, that's hotter, that's far beyond the boundaries of Wilmore, Kentucky. And that was a really exciting prospect to me. And if that's true, then actually our responsibility is to be faithful torchbearers, to take that out in whatever ways that might be most faithful, to continue to seek to participate and foster these, these good things that are happening among Gen Z and how, how they are experiencing the Lord in this really powerful, visible way. Yeah. I love so much about this story. And the story that I think a lot of us heard was the story of what was going on for the students and, and the out, and the move of the spirit and those types of things. But, but what I love, you know, a lot of our listeners are leaders in the marketplace. Mm-hmm. And I have to tell you that when I heard you and other folks from the team talking about how you as a leadership body responded, what rose up in me was a, was a new 
understanding of this beautiful example of what God says when he calls us to be meek. Mm-hmm. You know, you guys, you had authority, you had power, you had an ability, should you have decided to exercise it, to take control over this thing. And and you chose to exercise meekness. And I personally believe meekness is one of the superpowers that most right. leaders just don't even recognize they could be using. Right. Right. And in this case, and I wonder how many other cases, exercising meekness allows the spirit to do his work. Mm-hmm. You know, and and if you hadn't, if you guys had chosen to operate with more more authority, which in in some ways you operated with full authority <laughs> because you chose to operate that way. But I wonder how often we as leaders see something breaking out and we want to control it. We want to manage it and we do it with good intentions. We do it with the, under the name of stewardship, mm-hmm. but really we're, maybe we're a little afraid that it's going to go someplace we don't want it to go versus trusting the Lord. I just thought such a beautiful picture of you guys trusting the Lord with what he was doing there. I appreciate you saying that. And I very much agree with you on that somewhere in the outpouring humility was really important. And I say that because we've had students and staff and faculty go into other churches, other schools, other parts of the world. And some of the stories have have really been amazing. But I think one of the common denominators that I've gathered, and we've had some lunches just where people will tell these stories, and, and we're really trying to process those. And okay, what, what does that mean? But one of the common denominators is humility, that groups are willing to humble themselves and to rethink their their ministry or rethink what, what growth might look like or effectiveness. Yeah. I heard a really beautiful story of someone went to share about what happened at Asbury at a, a significant, I would just say a significant evangelical event. And this was overseas, I believe. But one of the leaders of this event came and and prostrate before the entire audience said, I have been using my position to advance my own career aim and my own personal interest at the expense of the mission of this organization. And he said, after that, the atmosphere just totally changed. It's like the, the bricks are coming down from the wall that people respond to that. And to your point, I don't have a, a, a well-formed theology for what's happening, but I think something like a space gets opened up that is not previously there. So I love, I love your expression that this is a superpower for Christians. Yeah. And yeah. in Philippians 2, this is the mind of Christ, that he, he took the form of a slave. He was made in human likeness and he, being found in that form he humbled himself and became obedient to the point of death, even the most humiliating death there is, death on a cross. And that that passage is preceded by Paul saying, let that, let that same mind be in you. And so it's a really, it's a really challenging, it's a really convicting verse. And the wind doesn't blow in that direction, right? We don't wake yeah. up <laughs> right. with, with those inclinations. So I've just been very moved to see so many people exhibit this meekness and this humility. And there have been some really amazing things that accompany that expression. So I just wonder, 
and and the, and the expression radical humility has been used a lot and yeah. i i think think that's fitting i think that's that's very relevant to some of what we're seeing absolutely absolutely well you know you already alluded a little bit to this kevin but one of the other things that that i've observed about you and your team and what's happening at asbury and I, and i i'm sure this is happening at a lot of other colleges as well but your heart and your team's heart for youth for this generation is so evident. It's just so evident and very moving. I have kids in that generation and I have a lot of heart for this generation as well. But I'm curious, you sit in a place where you have an opportunity to interact with this generation all the time. Tell us a little bit about what are you observing? What's important to this generation? What are the things that that they seem to be thinking about and what's what's the Lord doing with this generation? I'm not a, a cultural commentator, but I, to your point, I have worked with young adults and youth for a long time. And I think it's important to recognize, and this is certainly not unique to me, this is the most marketed to generation in human history. And so with that, it, it, it's kind of a paradox of information. The more information you have, the less you know, the more misinformed you are. And that breeds a kind of skepticism and sometimes even a negativity or a bitterness about what what is being promoted to them. And what we see in that then is kind of a a potential delegitimization of existing authority structures, but also the elevation of authenticity. So authenticity is very important to Gen Z for better or for worse. And I think that if that's true, and I believe it is, that has significant implications for how we reach that generation, how we interact with them, how we invest in them. Mm-hmm. And when I when I grew up in the 80s and 90s, I, I joke, I grew up in a kind of Josh McDowell age. And so it, like intellectual apologetics, here are, the, here are the six reasons the resurrection happened. And yeah. I, I loved that stuff. And I love it today. I love reading books that, that provide an intellectual argument. The conclusions follow the premises on why we believe what we believe our faith is reasonable, et cetera. But what I found with this generation is they, if if you start with a propositional argument, you're done. It just, yeah, it's yeah. dead on arrival. And so they're asking a different set of questions than probably what you and I were asking Anne in years past about, is the Bible true? Or how does Jesus compare to other gods that in, in other world religions? And they're asking questions about, does this work? Or not, is this true, but is it good? We just had a, a speaker in chapel last week who's done campus ministry for several decades. And he said, the number one question I get asked on secular campuses is, why are Christians so bad? And so different sets of, of questions are being asked. So in light of that, I, I love this quote by the, the British evangelist Gypsy Smith. He said, there are five gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John, and the Christian. And most people, he said, <laughs> will never read the first four. Oh, it's wow. such a great point that my, do I view my life as a walking, talking, living, breathing fifth gospel? Because that is what this generation is paying attention to. But if I come in with a do as I say, not as I do theology, again, dead on arrival. So the good news is, I think that authenticity, if faith groups are willing to, not willing, if if they're living into the holy life, 
And when they say Jesus is Lord, if they really believe that uh, with all their heart, with all their being, that's going to be fundamentally attractive to this generation. But that is how we make our argument. Our, our lives, there's an evangelist, uh, or I'm sorry, a theologian in Britain, Alison Milbank, and she she's used this expression, we perform our argument. I don't simply express it, I perform it. And that performance, that that acting out, that living, that embodied picture is the argument for what I believe and what I value and the trajectory to human flourishing found in the person of Jesus Christ and in the Christian faith tradition. So I think that when we get that right, we have a, a massive opportunity to be influential on this generation. And when we get it wrong, we have a massive opportunity to destroy our witness because the stakes are that much higher. Just a very quick story. Yeah. And this is anecdotal. Again, this was not, you know, a methodologically sound survey or something that was done. But <laughs> back in February, there was a, a relatively popular news outlet reached out to me and they were asking about what was happening. At the end of this, they just said, well, let's talk about Gen Z. Why is Gen Z responding to this? And and obviously a broader audience beyond Gen Z responded, but we did see a lot of youth respond. Yeah. And I, I said, you know, I think we have these global wars. We are constantly aware of it with our phones. We have social unrest. We have racial injustice that our students are aware of. We have economic uncertainty. We have this totally dysfunctional political polarization. Yeah. And then to top it all off, we had a global pandemic. And so this really creates a strong sense of dynamism that I think is acutely felt by younger generations. And I said, and they want something more. They, they want to hook into something that's going to hold them amidst this swirl of dizzying change. And so the next day I, I was with some students and I said, well, hey, <laughs> I was asked this question about you and I gave this answer and tell me, was it a good answer? And one of the students who's, who's very articulate he considered what I said and he said, well, I think you're right, but I, I wouldn't word it that way. We don't want something more. We want something less. And that was fascinating to me. He's, we, we don't want the accoutrements of religiosity. We don't want the big brick and mortar and the branding and the fog machines and give me something real yeah. that is unchanging. And that was just a, a really beautiful but powerful expression. And I do think that is representative of how young adults feel. Uh, they want something that can hold them. Yeah. I, and I kind of hear you saying they want something personal yes. and authentic. And, you know, that really goes back to the blood of the lamb and the word of our testimony. I mean, it, yes. it goes, but, you know, I was, I was thinking about, you know, what do we as leaders We've got these young people coming into our organizations and what is it that we need to be sharing with them? And I, and I think the answer is clear. We just need to be sharing our lives. We need to be right. sharing our decisions. We need to be sharing when we make a mistake right. so that, you know, our testimony does not do the damage, right? When we, right. when we're open about what well, we're, of course, we're not perfect. And of mm -hmm. course we make mistakes, but, you know, as we're walking and learning and becoming more and more like Jesus, we're going to, we're going to make mistakes along the way. I really like, I really love that. What is it that you think, you know, especially thinking about leaders in the, in the marketplace, even what should we be learning from this generation? What is it that we need to be listening for and paying attention to that maybe will wake us up in some new ways from this generation? 
Yeah, that's a great question. I just did a job recommendation for a student and I heard a question from the the hiring manager I've never heard before. She just said, how can I be a really good manager to this, mm. this young adult? I was like, well, thank you for asking that. I've great never question. heard that. It's always, how did they, what did they need to do to conform to my environment? And if they don't do that well, you know, they're out. And she was like, no, I, I really, I really want to come beside and, and help him. And I just said, you know, in working in working with students, one of the things that is really clear to me is that whatever you do, it should be done through the currency of relationship. And so you articulated that very well, um, coming beside students, telling them, look, here's something I've learned. Here's where I get it wrong. <laughs> here's where I've made a mistake. But all of those things are done through a relationship and not in, in some kind of disembodied or abstract way or, or cold, uh, disattached way. And so I, I think it, it's through that that we can really reach them. Because again, it's not just about the, the intellect, even though that's important, but it's about do they know that they are loved, they are cared for, that they are believed in. I think to that point, that's been something that's been really powerful to me, especially over this last year is just a recommitment that like, look, I, I can name all the pathologies of younger generations and just like older uh, adults could have done that for Gen Xers like me. Yeah. And I think that's easy to do, but I was just sharing about it's worth our investment for this next generation. And uh, I said that to someone and they had a great line back. They said, what alternative do we have? Like we have to invest in that. We have to and so I would just say to folks in the marketplace, I believe that investment is worth it. Uh, yeah. when, when this generation commits to something, they're in. And wouldn't it be like the Lord to use a generation that is supposedly irreligious, institutionally skeptical, to actually correct some of the things in the church that need correcting, to actually forge a new path forward that is more authentically aligned with kingdom values and with Christ. Wouldn't, wouldn't that be like God to do that? And so if the Lord is doing that, and I think he is, what a great opportunity for us to participate in that and to, to come alongside uh, and to, to foster uh, that growth and development for these young adults. But it, I think they have to perceive that they're not a project or they're not dispensable, but we are really invested in their lives through a relationship. Yeah, I, I think that's that's so well said. I heard um, David Kinneman, he's the CEO of Barna. Mm -hmm. you, you probably know David. I heard him speak at a conference last spring and he was saying, he just expressed it so well that you're right. The generation before seems to always complain about the generation after. <laughs> right. And the reality is we as leaders have this opportunity to see the immense opportunity yes. Yes. in this generation because it, exactly to your point, the authenticity that they bring, the skepticism they bring just brings a whole new facet of who Jesus really is and yes. who he is to me. And, mm -hmm. and, I, and I think what I learned from these guys is I learned the importance of even being honest with myself about where I am walking with the Lord well and where I am still messing up and <laughs> not quite where I know I have the potential to be mm -hmm. and authenticity almost gives us even more permission to be authentic. Right, right, right. It's such a, it's a beautiful thing. It's a beautiful thing. 
All right, let's shift a little bit. I saw a, an article recently that you wrote about unity. I think it was mm-hmm. shared on on LinkedIn. And I want to talk a little bit about unity and this this call of the church, the big C church, <laughs> to, to unity. I, I'm curious, what are some practical ways that we, you know, as leaders or people in the marketplace, what are some practical things we can do to participate or respond in a unified way or in a way that moves us towards unity in such a polarizing time in, in history? Yeah. Thank you for asking about that. I'm I'm thrilled even at the interest because I, I I think it's important just to state up front a couple of things. One, yeah, very, very polarized moment for the United States. And yeah. there are all kinds of really discouraging data points that reflect this or anecdotes. So that's clear. I don't think anyone would dispute that. But the interesting thing in America, in the United States, we use a lot of unity language, e pluribus unum. Uh, yeah. out of many one, or uh, liberty and justice for all, or one nation under God, indivisible. And so we we have that in our language and our coinage symbols and icons. But really the, the on the ground reality is unity is an aspiration in America because we, we really are more characterized by political typologies that have some, some really incommensurable differences across groups. But in Christianity, unity is not an aspiration. It, it's an expectation. And it's we, a command. Yeah. It's a command. Yes. Yeah. And we see it throughout scripture. I, I was just reading Titus in chapter three, like have nothing to do with anyone who causes divisions. That's really strong language. Do, are we willing to, to take that seriously or at least consider what that means in our lives? So Christ prays for this in John 17. I think that there are lots of things we do. And this is what I was seeking to talk about in the article that are overtures towards unity. And some of them are really effective. First and foremost is what we might call unity along the lines of like liberal democratic values. And it's just just be kind, be respectful, appreciate differences. They exist and find these humanizing points of commonality amidst those differences. That That's an American ideal. There's actually some really good data that serving together for groups that have differences can can actually reinforce shared unity. If there's a singular aim, it can kind of fold in these diverging beliefs. And then of course, there's there's doctrine. If if we believe the same thing, we can we can be unified. All of those things are are valuable. And I think they're increasingly valuable in some ways, but I don't think humbly, I, I'm not convinced that those things will bring about the kind of unity that Jesus was praying for and that commentators describe to us today in John 17, when he prayed that we would be one as Christ, the son and God, the father are one. And someone might hear that and say, well, wait a second, having, believing the right things must certainly unify Christians. And to which I would respond, yes, doctrine is super important. I, I will I will ring that bell all day long, that doctrine matters and how we form our beliefs, et cetera. But I would point to, I believe it's Acts 8 with Simon the Magician, who it says he believed, uh, Simon believed. He was baptized. He followed Peter around. He was doing the things Christians do, but there's the rebuke at the end of the chapter where Peter says, 
may your money perish with you. Your heart is not right before God. And that to me is the key is thinking about the heart. Yeah. What's the orientation of the heart? And Wesley, John Wesley, paraphrasing 2 Kings 10, 15 says, if your heart is as my heart, if your heart is the same as my heart, take my hand, which is just a, a really beautiful invitation that if our hearts are aligned, if this is the thing that we're going after, we can be unified. So I think I would put it this way. If our loves are ordered in such a way that our affections for a right relationship with Christ supersede all other affections, that our collective affections for Christ supersede other affections, then I, I do think this creates a more robust condition for Christian unity, the, the kind that Christ prayed for in John 17, more so than, than kindness or shared service or even shared doctrine. Yeah, I think that makes a lot of a lot of sense. And thinking about the application of that for, you know, marketplace leaders and and Christians in the workplace, it's fascinating that well, maybe it's not fascinating, maybe that's a big too big of a word, but it's it's interesting that, you know, many times in employee culture or work culture, it's real easy to get tempted into our hearts being for ourselves. Yeah. And we can go work a service project, we can share the same belief, but at the end of the day, what's motivating our choices and how we treat each other, what we, you know, which meeting we show up at, how much we talk in the meeting, how much, we, you know, I mean, there's so many factors in our day-to-day -day actions and, and it's, you know, Proverbs says, guard your heart because from mm -hmm. it, you know, everything's going to flow out of that. So that's right. I think it's really well said, really well said. And we won't get to that kind of unity unless our hearts are really fixed on Jesus. Yeah. To, to your comments, yeah. there was a theologian who said, if I want to kill you, but I don't, I'm deterred in some way by criminal punishment or whatever. Am I peaceful? And right. we would say, of course not, <laughs> yeah. because it, it doesn't, it's not simply my action. It's what is what is the orientation of my heart towards yeah. others. And so I found myself praying for the very reasons you mentioned several times in previous years and and will continue to like, Lord, help me, help me to see with the eyes of Christ. Help me to see others with your eyes and not mine so that uh, I can see beyond my biases and I can see beyond selfish motives that stain and color how I interpret the actions of others, even in uncharitable ways. And so I think that kind of self that you're describing is when, when we come into some of these places with other people and it's kind of a first step, like kind of a, a heart check. Yeah. <laughs> uh, yeah. Yeah. I love that. I love that. All right. We're coming towards the end of our time. Mm -hmm. I want to ask for you as a leader, Kevin, right now, where is God challenging you? Thank you for asking. I think there is always a question uh, for for me and something that that needs consideration, that needs the wisdom of others, and that needs to be brought before the Lord about when to do something and when not to do something. I know that sounds really generic, but like, when should I speak? When should I forbear? When should I act and put my thumbprint on it? and uh, take action, be resolute? And when do I need to pause and be still and trust and see how things play out? When do I collaborate uh, with others? And when do I, I need to make a decision? 
And what are those things that that are negotiable? And there is some space to to think about something and think about it with a group of other people. And what are the non-negotiables? What are those things that we just say, we are so committed to this that whatever else happens, we will fortify around this and we will protect this. And so I, I think that's those questions are are always for any leader. You're always discerning that. And if there's ever a day where I would say, oh, I have all those figured out, then I shouldn't be in leadership because I think it's just a, a constant tension. But it's an opportunity. You phrase the question like, where where is God working in my leadership right now or maybe challenging me? I think it is an opportunity to see yourself subject to something bigger than yourself, to other people and to the Lord. I have a a prayer, this kind of liturgy that I established many years ago that that I pray as I walk from my car to my office. And so when I, I used to be a faculty member and being a faculty member is just a really great job. There there might be stress, it's certainly busy, uh, but it, it's it's just a different gear than administrative work from a stress standpoint. But I always ended that prayer and end it asking for daily bread, uh, the grace to live faithfully into this new day. But in, in the role I'm in now, there are days where I pray that prayer and I mean it with every fiber of my being. Like, Lord, I actually don't know how I will get through today without daily bread, uh, without your grace to navigate the complexities that are coming before me today. So I I actually hate that position. <laughs> it's... <laughs> It's frightening and uncertain and unsettling and none of us like it, but that's not a bad spiritual place to be because it constantly reinforces our dependence. And so I want these questions to be resolved, when to do this and when to do that. Uh, But the good news is that that pushes me to the Lord and it pushes me to other people who are wiser and older than I am to, to make the right decision at a given time. Yeah. It's fascinating. I actually would connect that back to the point we just talked about, about unity, because I'm thinking that, you know, the the other very American ideal is independence, which is, you know, in some ways sharply contrasted to unity. Yes. But, But what I heard you just say, and is such a good reminder for leaders is if you operate as an independent leader, you're not going to be able to discern clearly from the Lord, we we operate right. dependent on the Lord and interdependent on him to get things done on yes. the earth, but dependent on him for guidance. And I love that idea of even that there's a, there's a little practical tip in there. If the, if listeners didn't pick up on it, you know, you have a beautiful opportunity to pray between your car and your office, every home office, if you work at home, but, but there's an opportunity to there to take a moment and just remind yourself mm-hmm. Hey, I'm dependent on you. Give me some fresh manna. Give me insight. Give me discernment today as I go into this conversation or these this set of meetings that I've got today or these decisions that I have to make. So thank you for sharing that. Very practical. Very well said. I love your summary. One of the best sermons I've ever heard was a woman in Indiana, and it was just called Daily Bread. And in her message, among other things, she was like, why why do we have to breathe constantly? Why couldn't we just take one breath and that's good enough for a week, you know, or a month? Or why why can't I just eat 
you know, 10,000 calories. And then that's, I'm, I'm good for, you know, four to six days or whatever. And why, why do I have to sleep every day? Why does my body have to uh, have certain cycles, waste cycles and whatnot every day? And her point in all this was our very embodiment reminds us of our constant dependence and interdependence on others and the world around us. We are not these self-contained entities that are self-made, self-sustaining, and self-aware, self-known. Former president here, Dennis Kinlaw, said it takes two of us to know one of us, which I love that expression. So amen to what you're saying, that the very way we're constructed as humans is, is this kind of ontological reminder of the need for dependence and interdependence and a healthy relationship with with others. But it seems like a lot of forces of of modernism and and hyper individuality are attempting to kind of remind us or or militate against those ideas and and seek to tell me that I am some kind of unencumbered, untrammeled creator of the raw material around me, island on my own individual, which I think is a really harmful idea. Yeah, for sure. Well, Dr. Kevin Brown, this has been such a inspiring and thought-provoking conversation. I am so just honored and grateful that you agreed to chat with us and so much good learning in this conversation for our listeners. I hope that you enjoy the conversation as well. I know that I certainly did. Thank you. This has been wonderful. Again, I really appreciate the opportunity. Awesome. I so enjoyed that conversation with Dr. Kevin Brown. I'm guessing you'd agree with me that he is one of the wisest and meekest, and I mean that in the very best way, leaders that I've met. It makes him an incredibly powerful leader in the kingdom. It's so important, and clearly he's in the right role for such a time as this, impacting and shepherding the lives of this next generation. I had so many takeaways from this conversation. Here are a couple of them. You know, Kevin talked about early on as the outpouring began, this recognition that what he and the leadership team needed to do was bring some orderliness, but not manage or control what was happening. And and he talked about that the trajectory of an outpouring is out right? That's what an outpouring is. And it really got me thinking, how often do we as leaders try to control things that God is doing? And how might we benefit if we just kind of let go of our tight grip on certain things and trusted the Lord to lead? We bring order, but not control. There's a really fine line between those two, I think. Here's my second takeaway. You know, I I was asking Dr. Brown about Gen Z, like, what do they need from us as leaders? And, and he talked about them needing from us authenticity. And, and I, was, I was shocked. The number one question he said he gets when he goes to other campuses is, why are Christians so bad? <laughs> that's, that's a little appalling in some ways. And, and I love what he said. He said, you know, the, the truth is we perform our argument. The thing that we're trying to convince people of is evidenced by our lives. And, and Gen Z is looking for authenticity. Whatever we do, we do it through the currency of relationships, sharing. Here's what I've learned. Here's where I got it wrong. Here's where I've made mistakes. And sharing our lives with them is, is really what these young leaders of tomorrow need from us. 
They need to know also that they're loved, that they're cared for, that they're believed in, that it's worth it to us to invest in them. And the reality is that when these guys in this generation, Dr. Brown would observe and lots of others that I've talked to would observe too, when they commit to something, they're really in. And won't it be amazing to watch the Lord use this generation that in some ways is so skeptical of institutions and skeptical of the church in a lot of ways, won't it be amazing to watch how he uses them to correct and shape the church as into the future when it just feels like such a great opportunity for us to participate in that. Third takeaway was really from the conversation that Dr. Brown and I had about unity. You know, such a good reminder that unity isn't about our doctrine, our shared doctrine. It's not about sharing a way of serving people. It, it's essentially, it's about ordering our lives. I love how Dr. Brown put this. It's ordering our lives in such a way that our collective affections for Christ supersede all of our other affections. If we all were living that way, that would be the kind of unity that Christ is calling us to. And by the way, he's not just suggesting it. In scripture, it's it's an expectation, it's a command that we live in this unified way. How can we come together and say that our collective affection for Christ is more important to us than our affection for all other things? Such a great insight, I thought, from the conversation. And then the, the last takeaway was so practical. I really loved when we were talking about, you know, what does it really look like to pray without ceasing? It feels like that's, sometimes feels like that's a monumental task. And I loved the story about the sermon that Dr. Brown heard where the, the teacher was asking, why is it so important that we have to breathe all the time? Why can't I just eat 10,000 calories and be good for 10 days? Why do I have to sleep every day? And just the reminder that the very way our bodies are made reminds us of our constant dependence on the Lord and our interdependence on all of our organs and how they're working and how we work with and, and live with each other. We're not self-made, self-sustaining, or self-known. We need other people and we need the Lord and we need the constancy of the Lord to really enable us to be the best that we can be. And the beautiful little specific tip of saying, what is the little time that you have between getting out of your car and going to your office? or the five minutes that you have as you're getting ready for a meeting and logging into Zoom. And just how can we take that time and ask the Lord to give us some fresh manna, to pray in that moment and just ask him to reveal himself to us or to use us, to speak through us, to open our ears, to open our eyes to him and how he's working. And that's really what it looks like to pray without ceasing. I was personally so encouraged and so challenged also at the same time by the Lord after this conversation. I'd love to have you join me in embracing some of these challenges. I was challenged and encouraged to loosen my grip on certain things that I'm holding onto so tightly that there's really no opportunity for the Lord to show up. I was challenged and encouraged to seek unity, and I was challenged and encouraged to pray more consistently. And probably closest to my heart for me, I was, I was mostly really convicted to think about and consider how can we, how can I encourage and equip Gen Z, this next generation of faith-driven leaders? How can I be more authentic? How can I share my successes and my failures, my life with young people in this generation? How can we build them up and cheer them on? That's really what our call is, to build up and cheer on the next generation.
So if you have loved this conversation, I hope that you did. Would you help us spread the word about the Faith Driven Leader podcast? You can do that by subscribing, rating, and sharing the link with your friends and followers. We would be so, so grateful. And do you know anybody who you think would be a great guest on Faith Driven Leader? I'd love for you to shoot me a DM on Instagram or LinkedIn and let us know who you would like to hear from on the Faith Driven Leader podcast. Well, I want to give one more round of thank yous again to the very wise Kevin Brown for joining us today. We'll chat with you next time on the Faith Driven Leader.